HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org slash conference. Well, it's delicious. Sugar is delicious. You know, there's a reason why a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Um, it makes people happy. It's, you know, it's just wonderful. And it's in everything. And a little bit goes a long way. That's Professor Marian Nessel, a public health expert and nutrition scientist, talking about why we humans innately love sugar. We'll hear more from her about how sugar affects our health a little later. In this episode of Meet and 3, we jump back into our mini-series on global trade. Our last episode introduced the dynamics involved in growing global trade, from the Silk Road to our contemporary world. We recommend listening to that episode before continuing on. Our focus this week is all things sweet. Although confectionery trade routes today and throughout history have been quite bitter, We'll start by looking at the questionable journey of the cocoa bean from West Africa into the most popular chocolate products in the U.S. Then we'll hear about big sugar and how some farmers are pushing back against the industry. We'll explore the cultural imports and perhaps appropriations surrounding the National Date Festival in Indio, California. And finally, we look way back to learn how the merchants of the Silk Road played a role in domesticating the apple tree in pursuit of a perfectly sweet fruit. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. To kick off this episode, Tosh Kimmel explores the legacy of imperialism on the modern-day cocoa trade. On any given day, you can walk into your local corner store and buy a commercial chocolate bar for little more than a dollar. Second only to the Netherlands, the U.S. is the largest importer of cocoa in the world. However, few may be able to conjure the cocoa bean, or the hard, pithy, football-shaped pod which houses it. Though incapable of being cultivated on U.S. soil, chocolate has become an American cultural staple. So how is it that the price of cocoa has stayed so low? And who pays the real price for our favorite cheap indulgence? To better understand the disconnect, I spoke with author and cocoa scholar Dr. Christy Leslie. West Africa is the world's largest 
producer region of cocoa. You know, in Ivory Coast and Ghana are the top two. Nigeria and Cameroon also produce you know, quite large amounts. Um, but West Africa is nowhere near the world's largest chocolate manufacturing or consuming region. It's probably one of the lowest. Most chocolate is manufactured and consumed in Europe and North America. It's not like other foods. We have a very like personal feelings about chocolate. We involve chocolate in celebrations. We involve it in our sadness. You know, we just, any emotion we feel, we can really use chocolate to either enhance that emotion or to soften it or help drive it away. I mean, we chocolate is escapism. While much of the Western world has deep emotional ties to chocolate, for West African countries who produce most of the world's cocoa, the crop's only value lies in its commodification. Yet even as the world's biggest producer of this sought-after commodity, cocoa farmers have historically found themselves without influence on the world stage. Instead, they are beholden to the prices put in place by a handful of European and North American chocolate companies. Oppressive poverty, for sure. I mean, farmers earn so little for their work. I mean, it's... it's tough, tough, tough labor, you know, and it's not compensated proportionate to that labor. There is a power differential, you know, between the places that consume the final product, which is much more valuable culturally, financially, even some ways psychologically. (laughs) Um, But I think it's also ease of access to basic things like a clinic or an eye doctor or a drugstore to purchase sanitary items for women. You know, I mean, these are just practically non-existent, you know? So it's like poverty. Yes, absolutely. Is it also an almost total lack of access to the things that make life healthy and safe and a bit easier from a material perspective? Yes, it's also that. Though providing chocolate to some of the richest countries in the world, farmers often make less than a dollar a day further proving that the legacy of imperialism which brought cocoa to Africa nearly 200 years ago continues to inform the exploitative practices which govern the cocoa trade today. Imperialism is a, it's a good word to use in some ways to describe that system because people don't grow cocoa in West Africa because they want to turn it into chocolate and eat it themselves. It doesn't have that inherent value for people. Ivory Coast was colonized by... France and Ghana was colonized by Britain. And those two countries dominated the colonial landscape across the West African region. There was a lot of cultural pretending like, you know, we Europeans are going to civilize these primitive Africans was the horrific and, you know, despicable cultural rationale to justify colonialism. But when it comes right down to it, economics was behind this, you know, I mean, everyone, they wanted to protect their own business, they wanted to protect their own industry. And one of the really, really good ways to do that is to make your inputs abundant and cheap. Recently, Ghana and the Ivory Coast have banded together to demand a 16% increase per metric ton of cocoa. However, the increase, which is meant to be returned to struggling farmers, is only the first in a multitude of needed steps. For an industry with such striking power imbalances, the question stands, what would it actually take to create an ethical cocoa trade? According to Greg Delisander, the chief sourcer at Kraft Chocolate Company, Dandelion Chocolate, 
The answer lies not with the consumer or even the farmers, but with the chocolate manufacturers. I think the thing that would need to change is the chocolate makers themselves would have to make an active decision that they're willing to spend more money on the cocoa itself, not programs to help cocoa farmers, not certifications to prove what's going on with cocoa farmers, but literally the price of cocoa. And so part of the challenge is it was always thought of as this sort of cheap good because it was coming from colonies. And so in many ways, that sort of set the tone for, for the cocoa industry. The price of chocolate bars has gone up in the last 50 years, but the price of cocoa has not, right? And so like the way I often describe it is, I think everybody wants to do the right thing. The question is not, do you want to do the right thing? The question is, do you want to do the right thing more than the profits you would earn in doing not quite the right thing? On average, an American chocolate bar contains only 11% cocoa, costing major manufacturers little more than a cent to produce. While commercial chocolatiers like Hershey, Nestle, and Mars use the minimum cocoa at the lowest cost to produce the cheapest product, craft chocolatiers like Dandelion are doing things differently. I think the cocoa buyers are like, hey, well, we have to resell this cocoa to a chocolate maker. And then the chocolate maker is like, hey, well, there's a price for this. If you guys are going to charge us more, we're going to go to one of the other four massive cocoa traders, right? And so you end up in this, everybody's kind of pointing the fingers and blaming everybody else, but no one's actually fixing the problem. One of the things that we and most craft chocolate makers do is we're buying cocoa that is not coupled to the commodity price. We're buying cocoa based on what the cocoa producer wants to sell it for. And then that's what we end up paying. It ends up meaning that we're not sort of trying to stick to a price that's being set by, you know, commodity traders in New York based on what very large chocolate makers would pay for it. The average consumer of cheap chocolate may not understand the ins and outs of Coco's complex trade systems. They may not relate to the plight of a destitute farmer. But in the fight for ethical chocolate, education is key. There's these sort of structures and ideas and attitudes that have been put in place over the course of literally centuries that have sort of created this. And so it's going to take quite a long time to try to unravel. But I think the way to start unraveling it is talk about where your cocoa comes from, educate people. I, I would say what we're doing is not, quote unquote, helping farmers. What we're doing is trying to behave in an appropriate manner working with another business. One of the things that we we want to make sure is that people understand more about chocolate, the chocolate industry, cocoa, and the cocoa industry. It will bring some more balance to the relationship between chocolate makers and cocoa producers. Understanding where your chocolate comes from and valuing the labor that went into its production is a big step in what craft producers hope will be a significant cultural shift. At its core, this is a human issue with real consequences for real people. And while capitalism and imperialism have attempted to commodify farmers, we must learn to value their labor as much as we value its outcome. Here's Dr. Leslie again. As best we can do to think of cocoa farmers not as this generalized group who are all the same in some way, they're human beings, right? They're like your next door neighbor or your friend. The more we can encourage ourselves to think of them as individuals with their own life stories and their own hopes and dreams and challenges and joys and skills, the better off I think we'll be. To learn more about the cocoa industry, Dr. Leslie's research, or Dandelion's single origin chocolate, visit our show notes. Trade has been central to sugar's growth from a luxury item in the 1600s to an everyday and overconsumed commodity.
Next, Anna Oakes finds out how marketing practices by Big Sugar have cultivated the United States' voracious sweet tooth. And she finds out if there's another, more local way to get our sugar fix. In 2014, artist Kara Walker installed a sculpture of a sphinx, 35 feet tall, in the soon-to-be-demolished Domino Sugar Refinery in Brooklyn. Walker's sculpture, titled A Subtlety, was built out of white sugar, which she referred to as blood sugar, and at the face of a black woman that evoked the racist mammy stereotype. The piece drew a connection between sugar's violent past, rooted in slavery, and the present-day companies that monopolize sugar production, like Domino Sugar itself. It was Christopher Columbus who first brought sugarcane to the Americas. For the almost four centuries that followed, sugar was a driving force behind the Atlantic slave trade and the colonization of the Americas and the Pacific. Sugar's profitability and its growing popularity in Europe were fueled by millions of enslaved people taken from Africa, forced to work under brutal and dangerous conditions. Today, the sugar industry still consists of a powerful web of large-scale growers, producers, and lobbyists. And it remains notorious for its dependence on low-wage, dangerous labor and environmentally detrimental practices. In particular, the sugarcane owners are in Florida and Louisiana. Very politically powerful there, with enormous access to Congress and enormous access to political figures, such that the price of sugar in the United States is higher than on the world market because they insist on it. That's Marion Nessel, a nutrition scientist, public health expert, and professor at NYU. She's written extensively on the companies that lobby Congress and invest in ambitious campaigns to exploit and prolong our addictive relationship to sugar. It's one of those tastes like salt, where the more you have, the more you want. Once you get used to a certain level of sugar intake, it takes more to make it taste sweeter. And that is a big incentive to put sugar in absolutely everything. Thanks in part to marketing efforts by the industry, the average American consumes about 77 pounds of sugar per year. All of the groups that work on behalf of the sugar industry are very eager to have people think that sugar is harmless. They cast doubt on any research that shows harm of sugar. They attack the scientists who criticize excessive sugar intake. They make sure to be embedded in World Health Organizations and World International Agencies that might make dietary recommendations against sugar. Despite efforts by the industry to downplay sugar's effects, the evidence is decisive. Sugar lies at the heart of many health issues we face today. Eating a lot of sugar makes the diet not as nutritious. It's bad for your teeth. And there's circumstantial evidence and correlational evidence that people who eat a lot of sugar have worse diets or fatter and have more chronic disease than people who don't. The consequences of the sugar industry's efforts are not felt equally in the U.S. Marketing campaigns often specifically and aggressively target Black and Latino communities. Paired with racial disparities in income and health care, including discrimination in diagnosis and treatment, this means that African Americans have overall worse health outcomes for conditions like diabetes, heart disease, and, of course, COVID-19. Large-scale industrial, agricultural, and production operations compound the power imbalances. Some independent farmers, however, are working to reclaim sugar's legacy. I am the sixth generation to have planted a crop on the land. Jupiter Gilliard, which is my great-great-great-grandfather, who was born 1812 enslaved, purchased 476 acres in land for $9 in taxes in 1874. That's Matthew Rayford. He's a chef and a farmer. Or a chef farmer. And with his sister, he runs Gilliard Farms on the coast of Georgia. He also hosts a show on Heritage Radio Network, Jupiter's Almanac. 
A few years ago, Gilead Farms started growing a strain of sugarcane called Purple Ribbon. That's like one of the original strands of sugarcane in the South. And it just, it chews well, it's juicy. To me, it's earthier in the raw stage, you know what I'm saying? The molasses that's made from it, the quality of it is just up there. To me, it's one of the best sugarcanes around. Historically, labor-intensive crops like sugarcane and rice were grown by enslaved people on plantations in the South. Plantation owners took advantage of the knowledge brought by West African slaves. You know, those were the reasons that they enslaved us in the area was because we had the ability to be able to work and do those kinds of things. If you were to ever look at the hundred miles of uh, coast of Georgia, the reason that it is the way it is, the amazing ecology that's there, comes from the enslaved culture creating the rice paddies there. Those plantations consolidated and grew into the large-scale operations, like Domino Sugar, that control the industry today. These companies still aren't paying the fair wage. It's profit. It's profit, profit. Even though Matthew doesn't place his work in opposition to Big Sugar, he is carving out a niche for local sustainable agriculture. Gilead Farms collaborates with other local growers from the Geechee community to bottle and sell purple ribbon cane syrup. Geechee refers to some African-American communities in the low country region of Georgia and other states who are known for their distinct cultural heritage. You know, they would be considered the saltwater Geechee because they're off the island, and I would be considered a freshwater Geechee because I'm inland. So we are all working together to, to really try to grow the community. Gilead Farms is an example of some of the benefits that scaling down agriculture can bring to the community and to growers themselves. We run the farm on what we call Good Sap, and Good Sap stands for sustainability, accountability, affordability, productivity, and then making sure that we are putting people before profit. For Matthew, that means ensuring that farmers who grow food for others also have enough on the table for themselves. So one of our big missions right now is to talk to more farmers about preserving crops and or making sure that their families are eating from those crops. This past year has exposed and exacerbated the inequalities that pervade our country, from labor exploitation to food and racial health disparities. Here's Professor Nesseligan. The coronavirus pandemic has demonstrated how closely food is linked to political problems in the United States, to inequalities, to horrible working conditions, to the fact that when unemployment is rampant, people don't have enough to eat. And people who are most liable to the really bad effects of COVID-19 are people who have diet-related chronic diseases like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and so forth. At the same time, as our lives have become increasingly localized during the pandemic, the potential and urgent need for more accessible and sustainable food practices have become clearer. Here's Matthew. That is my silver lining. It has made people look at the food system and realize that regenerative agriculture is where we need to be. I know that everybody's had the craziest year ever. Even if nothing even affected you at all outside of that you have been in pajamas for 300 and something days and maybe you've only taken a shower 12 times. But I think everybody is listening to this. I just think you need to take another 10 minutes of today and just go ahead and breathe it out. And then afterwards, say to yourself, I am committed to being a better human being and then put it into action. As Professor Nessel points out, food can't be separated from politics. Big Sugar contributes to disparities in food access and healthcare. 
Even though Gilead Farms isn't a direct reaction to the sugar industry, Matthew and his sister are doing important work to reimagine food production and bring it back to a local level, to connect with our communities, and to regain agency over what we eat. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. Welcome back to Meat in 3. Thanks to trade, Americans have been consuming dates since at least the 1800s. Tracing their roots all the way back to Morocco, Dates originally had to travel thousands of miles before reaching U.S. soil. Once in the hands of Americans, their quality wasn't great, and the date industry didn't see much success. But at the turn of the 20th century, nature's candy underwent a bit of a rebrand. The fate of the date palm in America changed in the early 20th century when the U.S. Department of Agriculture launched a special program called the Agriculture Explorers. The Agriculture Explorer's mission was to discover new crops abroad that they could then introduce to farmers back in the U.S. So these agricultural explorers are looking for crops that will better withstand weather conditions or pests, so different varieties that might be better suited, or totally new crops that we weren't growing yet. And one of the totally new crops that we weren't growing yet are dates. That's Sarah C. Cates, a history professor at San Joaquin Delta College in Stockton, California. Sarah grew up in the Coachella Valley, which is now the date capital of the U.S. But way before Sarah's time, in the early 1900s, the agriculture explorers arrived in Morocco, where they got hold of medjool date offshoots to bring back to America. But alongside the dates themselves, importers were also bringing back stories of Middle Eastern life, connecting dates to the romance around a place very few Americans understood. The United States has had a really long pop cultural relationship to the Middle East, and Americans have been interested in the fantasies that they had created of the Middle East. And magazines or travelogues for armchair readers, something like a magic lantern slide or presentation and lectures from people who had actually been to the greater Middle East, which was a very small number at that point. Alongside America's love affair with its conception of Middle Eastern culture, date growers began to stroke the fantasy that the Middle East was luxurious and mysterious, but also dangerous. 
The Coachella Valley growers wanted to tap into that romance of the Middle East by saying that their dates had all that history and ties to Cleopatra or King Tut, who, by the way, they discovered dates in King Tut's tomb. But they also want to tell consumers that they're different than the Middle East. So they start to depict the Middle East as that place of romance, but also in their marketing, reminding people that dates grown in the United States, they claimed, would have been more sanitary. So they're tapping into these racial ideas of American superiority in order to say California grown is better. And at the same time, they're using this romance and fantasy to say, but dates are exotic and you should consume them. As dates rose in popularity, Coachella Valley farmers began expanding their marketing, selling their lifestyles and the deserts of Southern California. And so they start to kind of claim that the Coachella Valley is America's Arabia and sort of hint that you could travel the world without leaving the state. So if you were to visit the Coachella Valley during this time period, the 1910s and 1920s, you might notice that there's a city called Mecca and another city pops up called Oasis and Edom, right? These are nods to the greater Middle East. As luxury hotels and tourist destinations were constructed, the architecture began to take after this Orientalist fantasy. There were outdoor stands selling Arabian goods and camels to complete this pseudo-tourism experience. It all seemed to culminate around the late 1940s, when the Coachella Valley farmers and boosters began hosting the Riverside County Fair and National Date Festival, a 10-day-long festival that brought all these Arabian fantasies into fruition. There was an old Baghdad stage with locals dressed in costumes telling Persian stories, an Arabian Nights-themed pageant, and even camel races. I grew up going to the Date Festival. I was uh, born and raised in Indio, California, and my family had been there for a while. So for me, it didn't seem strange that I would drive down a street called Cairo, or it didn't seem strange that I would go to a festival that had camel races. But what I think is really interesting is that instead of like a dairy queen or a corn queen, the Date Festival has Queen Scheherazade and Princess Jasmine and this incredibly large court for a time that kind of represents local young women who are dressed in this quote unquote harem girl style clothing, very revealing for the time. And they're tapping into that Hollywood idea of the Middle East, um, one that's really different than the actual Middle East. And what we see is that the bodies of these young women are selling both the dates, but also the desert region and the Coachella Valley, right? They're marketing, come and buy these dates. The date festival was born out of a time when most Americans' only knowledge of the Middle East was being filtered through the fantasy of Hollywood. But as America's relationship towards the Middle East began to shift, the date festival and its surrounding communities were met with pushback. It's definitely misleading and it's fantasy and it can be very offensive at times. And what we see over time is that the United States' larger political relationship to the Middle East changed drastically. So in the 1970s, we start to hear about oil embargoes and we see the Iranian hostage crisis. And then Hollywood turns to the Middle East as the villain, increasingly so. And so we see a lot of pop culture really vilify the Middle East. And that has a really interesting effect on the date festival, which had been trying to sort of celebrate it. Um, But I think if we look at it with a critical eye today, we see this cultural appropriation and misappropriation and misunderstanding of the Middle East as one that deserves a deeper look for sure. 
In recent years, a growing cultural awareness has inspired a shift within the Coachella Valley community and pushback from younger generations. In 2014, complaints from the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Group called on the Coachella Valley High School to change their mascot, the Arab, and abandon the belly dancing genie that appeared alongside him. The new mascot, the Mighty Arab, has a more dignified appearance and was approved by the American Arab Committee and School Board. Though the date festival and relics of the Middle Eastern fantasy still remain, much has changed. Economically, dates are not as much of a focal point anymore. Highways leading into the valley used to be dotted with kitschy mom-and-pop date shops, Bedouin tents, and even pyramids. Today, they're spotted with fast food chains or gas stations. Thanks to renewed marketing campaigns, the date industry's branding is shifting once again. In an era of mass-produced, processed sweets, dates are now taking on the identity of a healthy, sweet treat within the wellness community. But marketing towards health and wellness may come with its own set of strange features. If anything, the Coachella Valley's date history has taught us that there's a critical line between paying homage to a food's roots and appropriating other cultures for one's own benefits. In our final story, we go back in time to when the now ubiquitous apple first planted its roots in kitchens across the world. For those of you who remember our intro episode, you recall that the Silk Road encompasses some of the earliest instances of large-scale trade. It gave people a huge opportunity to trade all things sweet, which mainly came in the form of fruit. Take the apple, for instance, whose genetic home originates in the hills of Kazakhstan thousands of years ago. In 2019, it was the second highest purchased fruit in the U.S. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the, the history of, of humanity is in uh, the stands in your produce market. The, the legacy of farmers over millennia uh, growing these crops and domesticating them is visible in the actual morphology and the physiology of the foods in the produce market. And also the, the process of moving these across the ancient world along trade routes such as the Silk Road is really what led to the formation of cuisines as we know them today. That's Robert Spengler, the director of the Archaeobotany Laboratories at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History and the author of Fruit from the Sands, The Silk Road Origins of the Foods We Eat. He's used his specialization in archaeobotany, the study of preserved plant evidence from archaeological sites, to uncover the history and evolution of specific foods. One plant that has become the poster child for his work is the apple tree. For most plants, domestication, which is a response to cultivation practices, can take thousands of years. But apples, which have a short generation length, can be domesticated at a much faster pace. During the Silk Road, The wild varieties of apples were bountiful. Some were big, red, and sweet, while others were small, bumpy, and bland. Farmers began cultivating the ones they thought tasted the best, the ones they thought tasted the sweetest. We can now say that the domestication of the apple tree was actually a process of at least four different wild apple varieties coming together and 
genetically crossing. So the, the pollen from one tree reaches the pollen from another tree, and these are all insect pollinated. So bees are pollinating them. But it requires that somehow the trees get planted close enough to each other that they can become pollinated. And in the wild, they're very far apart. They're on opposite ends of the Eurasian supercontinent. Through trade, they were able to cross-pollinate these wild varieties. What made the apple so attractive to traders and farmers in the first place was its natural sweetness, which was hard to come by. Plus, they were easy to travel with. The process of bringing them closer together looks like it was tied into humans moving these fruits across the ancient world. So along these trans-Eurasian exchange routes that we call the Silk Road, and when humans take varieties of these trees that they like from Central Asia and bring them closer to Europe, the bees essentially do the rest, and humans are, uh, farmers especially, are very prone to seeing unique or interesting varieties. And when they saw large fruiting very sweet hybrid varieties of apples, they then proceeded to kind of lock them into place using grafting and cloning. Simply planting apple seeds will not create a tree with apples that look and taste exactly the same as the parent tree. To ensure the offspring keep the same qualities as their parent, farmers used a technique called grafting. Here's a rundown of how that works can either take, say, a young shoot that's coming off the side of a, a tree and cut it off and plant it as a separate tree. Or in the case of, say, the apple tree, you can cut off a branch from one tree and stick it onto the trunk or the, the stump of another tree. And if they're close enough related, that branch can actually grow into a, a larger limb on a tree that will produce fruit. As they traveled along the Silk Road, merchants and farmers were able to perfect and preserve the sweet taste of apples, a fruit that has long since maintained its significance even outside of our kitchens. If you're interested in learning about the evolution and migration of other ancient crops in this time period, check out Robert Spengler's book, Fruit from the Sands, the Silk Road Origins of the Foods We Eat. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Tosh Kimmel, Anna Oaks, Caroline Fox, and Karina Andriatos. Meat in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. With story ideas or just to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc, all spelled out. <laughs>